The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Can everyone hear me? Does, does it matter? <laughs> so, can you hear now? Is it's a little bit loud for me? It's a little, maybe I don't know. Sometimes when I hear myself too much, it's it's not so nice for the talk. It's, or I hear double or something. So that's that's better. So, okay, everyone's happy with the quality. So. Um, So we do have this renovation work happening starting tomorrow, and uh, we will start up again having our meetings here uh, in the tail end of the renovation work. So people who come, um, you know, in, in August when we start up again, uh, you might encounter uh, us as a little bit of a construction site. So hopefully, you know, certainly we'll try to make it safe. I don't think the big work's going to happen in the next two weeks, but there might be still stuff and dust and and um, variety of things. Um, so, um, the core practice that we do here at IMC is mindfulness, mindfulness practice. And mindfulness has uh, different functions. Um, it uh, help us be present for what's going on so we can understand what's going on better. It helps us be present so that we can have access to um, a deeper connection to what is here, more than just understanding, a uh, deeper connection to ourself and some of the sublime feelings that uh, can be operating for us that are often, over, uh, over often not, we're not in touch with if we go around being distracted. And mindfulness has a function to help us become free, to liberate us from the ways we get entangled in our life and caught up in things, uh, in mild ways and also in very profound ways, the deep entanglement with uh, self, for example. And um, mindfulness is understood, at least in the Buddhist tradition, to be a very powerful practice. And it's, mindfulness is practiced in different ways and has there's different tools to support the mindfulness practice. And today I'd like to talk about one of the tools of mindfulness, and that is um, uh, usually called mental noting or labeling. And it's a, um, I think, a fascinating uh, topic, fascinating practice. There's uh, different, people have different points of view and opinions about this particular tool. So you might, if you can, if you have an opinion already, uh, either pro or against, for or against, you might, um, you know, bracket that, put that aside, and uh, and listen to what, uh, you know, the points of view I have here today, and then you can reassemble your opinions afterwards. Um, one of the big challenges for mindfulness practice is um, the is our thinking. Thinking it can be for some people a very powerful force that keeps us distracted, keeps us in the future and present, 
that prevents us from really being present in a quality, quality way. And mental noting is a very simple uh, way in which we use thinking to stay present rather than having thinking carry us away. And it's using a very primitive aspect of thinking, the very simple naming of an experience, some simple word that names an experience. And um, there's not discursive thinking, like we're kind of thinking about the experience and analyzing it and judging it and having conversations in our minds about, about it with people. It's, um, uh, we hear a sound and it's just hearing. Labeling us here, that's simple. It's not, oh, that was someone coughing and I bet they have a cold and I bet that now I'll catch it and I should go see my doctor tomorrow and I can't afford my doctor and, you know, and the mind runs off and then you forget you're here. So it's just very simple here, very simple. And one of the functions of this mental noting is that if you don't think in meditation, if you try not to think, an idle mind will get in trouble. And uh, the tendency to think is so strong. So here we're using a very, very primitive kind of form of thinking to stay present, stay here, here, hearing, hearing, seeing, you know, uh, tasting, touching, um, thinking, feeling. In order to stay here, stay present. And um, now this whole, so, so it involves words and we're, it involves labeling or identifying what the experience is that we're having here and now. And that activity of labeling is a little bit controversial for people, for good reason. So first I want to read um, what I think is a marvelous quote, um, passage by Helen Keller, uh, when she discovered words. She writes, someone was drawing. So some of you might not know that Helen Keller was... Uh, she couldn't. We say, what do we say? We say deaf and dumb. Is that not deaf, dumb, and blind? It's a pretty, you know, deaf, dumb, and blind. So she had a, a tactile contact with the world, but she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, and she couldn't uh, see. So it's a pretty big uh, handicap. And so she had a teacher when she was a child who was trying to teach her. In spite of that, so she wrote, someone. It was her teacher, but she didn't know that. Someone was drawing water from a faucet, I guess. And my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over my hand, she spelled into the other word, the other hand, the word water. First slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as something forgotten and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened in my soul, gave it light, hope, set it free. Kind of remarkable, huh? A little insight in someone who it doesn't have the contact with the world that many of us take for granted. And, uh, and here, this you know, dawn of consciousness, dawn of knowing, of recognition, um, through this, uh, you know, someone writing a word on her hand, spelling out the letters. And from there, she became, uh, uh, you know, she went to college, she became a great writer, 
wrote a, wrote a story of her own life, became one of the great American heroes, hero, heroines. So here, the, the tremendous power of words, of language, to set us free, to be able to maneuver our life, uh, have contact with other people, have relationships. So much of what we know about uh, human life the, um, and our relationships and our sense of self is mediated through words. And so as we do, do, uh, cultivate the vocabulary, we also cultivate a life. Uh, in Helen Keller's uh, kind of language, almost like a cultivated soul. It's quite a powerful thing to uh, have contact with language. Many of us are adults and maybe have forgotten the, the mystery of it or the marvel of it that happens. Or maybe children are too young to understand the marvel of it as they kind of start learning the words of it all. Um, and there are things that exist only because uh, we, we speak them. And I don't know, maybe good examples, but uh, for example, appreciation. We might appreciate someone, but um, we speak it, we name it, we say it. And then something else is born in the naming of it. The other person hears the appreciation and their gratitude is born or something happens in them. Or certain things we expect words to state that are very profound. For example, a promise or a commitment, uh, a, uh, you know, a um, wedding commitment, you know, wedding vows. You, have to, you, know, you, don't, you don't just kind of sit there dumb and quiet usually at the wedding and say, you know, will you take this person? <laughs> Internally, you know, you say yes, you know. What's this, you know, I don't believe in words, and, you know, it's this intuitive connection, so I'm not going to say yes. <laughs> you know, that doesn't quite work. The yes says something very powerful. Um, so some things come, come alive when we give them words. And, uh, and that's something uh, is true for ourselves in our life as well. On the other hand, we have here this wonderful passage by Rachel Naomi Remen in Kitchen Table Wisdom. The other, um, she writes, writes, a label is a mask life wears. So we call it mental labeling sometimes, right? We put labels on life all the time. Right, wrong, success, failure, lucky, unlucky. Um, these may be as limiting a way of seeing things as diabetic, epileptic, manic depressive, or even invalid. Labeling sets up an expectation of life that is often so compelling that we can no longer see things as they really are. This expectation often gives us a false sense of familiarity towards something that is really new and unprecedented. We are in relationship with our expectations and not with life itself. We may need to take our labels and even our experts far more lightly. Um, like a diagnosis, a label is an attempt to assert control and manage uncertainty. It may allow us the security and comfort of mental closure and encourage us not to think about things again. But life never comes to a closure. Life is a process, even mystery. Life is known only by those who have found a way to be comfortable uh, with change and the unknown. Given the nature of life, there may be no security, but only adventure. So she kind of speaks something many people have spoken about, the way in which if we uh, get too caught up in labels and names, that it also can distance us from our life, distance us from our experience. 
um, kind of put a veil over our experience. And I've certainly, through mindfulness practice, become, become very aware of how the thinking mind uh, uh, paints my reality and somehow puts kind of a veil over what's actually there. And you can see it in, a, in a, something as simple. I'll give you an example of, um, of um, one of the first times I kind of saw it was when I was at Zen Monastery, Tassahara. And they had this wonderful hot baths there. And um, uh, hot springs. And so we would go there every day, bath time to bathe and get clean and soak in the hot tub. It was very nice. And then one day I went to the bathhouse and um, there was this huge uh, frame with uh, five or six uh, one-gallon jars of incubating yogurt in the, in the hot tub. <laughs> so I looked at that and I said, is this a, is this a bath or is this a yogurt incubator? <laughs> what is it? And, uh, you know, of course it's both. But, uh, you know, a lot of things can morph, you know, depending how we use it, how we see it. We can see it from different points of view. And, um, and so if you label things too tightly, uh, so, so I saw, oh, it's my mind that creates that in some sense. I can see it this way, one way. I can, my mind can create a, a perception that sees it another way. So there's a tremendous creative potential of the mind to uh, project onto things. And we do it on people all the time. And we have labels for people. Um, oh, that's a bad person, or that's a dangerous person, or that's a desirable person. And so labels can also ca- cause problems. Still, in mindfulness practice, we use mental labeling, mental noting. Very simple. And the idea behind mental noting is it's not supposed to be interpretive in some abstract way. It's not meant to be um, judgmental. It's a training to try to name what's happening in the most simple way of our direct experience. So we hear a car outside hearing. That's simple. As opposed to, oh, I wonder what year that car was made in. I wonder what brand, I wonder who's driving it. Uh, I wonder why they had built IMC in a place where there's traffic. And the mind goes off kind of thinking about it as opposed to, oh, just hearing, hearing. Keeping it that simple. So there's very simple labeling. And um, it has a number of different functions. One function is that it is meant to be a fuller acknowledgement of what is. And I hope that all of you had the experience of having someone or you acknowledge something and in the acknowledgement, something inside of you relaxes. Oh, or oh, now I see it. So it can be as simple as someone uh, telling you, oh, um, you seem to be having a hard day today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you relax. Somebody sees you, acknowledges you. They, 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 have a na- they named it a hard day. But you, see, you feel seen in some way. And that simple acknowledgement being seen helps something relax or open or, or is helpful in some way. Um, that full acknowledgement can be, um, help keep us honest. I think of mindfulness as being um, truth, a, form of, a form of truth-telling. And um, I see that for me, when I sit down to meditate, that there are times when I'm not so in touch with myself. 
in some subtle way through I go through my day. But when I sit down to meditate and close my eyes, it's a chance for me to find out what's really going on with me in some deeper, deeper way. And sometimes I find out that I'm uneasy about something. I didn't realize I was un- un- uneasy until I sat down to meditate. And then I say to myself, oh, Gil, you're uneasy. <laughs> that's not such a, that's not a, you know, some great abstraction. You know, just that was kind of a, kind of very general experience. Oh, and then, I, oh, now that I've identified that, recognized that, now I can explore that. I can get to know it. I can find out what's going on in some deeper way. Sometimes um, there are things we don't want to see about ourselves or see about different situations. And it can be very powerful to name it. Family dynamics. Uncle so-and-so is an addict. Oh. <laughs> no one's supposed to say that. And, and finally someone says it. Or the story of, um, of um, the emperor has no clothes. You know, finally the little kid said, oh, he's naked. And, that, and everyone saw it. Oh, in fact, that's the way it is. So sometimes we, uh, this simple labeling, naming something, can be very, very powerful truth-telling act. It can free something inside of us in doing that. Um, so I see labeling as, as a full acknowledgement of what is here. Oh, this is what's happening. Another function of the labeling is um, if a person practices continuity of noting, so just keep noting, not that fast, but kind of slow, easy way, hearing, hearing, thinking, thinking, worried, worried, delighted, delighted, itch, itch. You can be that mundane, it doesn't have to be, you know, something sublime. And that continuity keeps us in the present moment. And the continuity of the noting helps us stay then continuously in the present moment which is the big, big challenge of mindfulness practice because the mind so easily leaves the present moment. If you have the continuity of that mindfulness, a person is much less, less, likely to get, less likely to get distracted or is much, less, much more likely to notice when they do get distracted. I have known people, I've known myself as well, who've thought, I'm pretty present when I meditate. Thank you. Things are going well. And I'm calm and present. And then um, I've done something like I started my mental noting, just naming what's here. Or back in my Zen times, I used to count my breath. I'd take up the counting. And I'd notice I, I would get to two. <laughs> supposed to get to ten. And the counting get to two. Or I would start doing the mental noting, you know, hearing, listening, itching, aching, thinking, whatever. Just do it like that. And then I'd notice after a while I stopped doing it. Oh, I've got to start doing it again. And that's, oh, I stopped doing it. And I said, oh, you know, I'm not, so, I'm not as present as I thought I was. The forces of distractions are actually quite strong here. And I was fooled into thinking that I was present because I was calm. Does that make sense? So that it's kind of, it kind of helps us know where we're at in our practice by kind of keeping the continuity going. Um, sometimes when we're more fully present then, for what's here, we have more continuity there's a greater chance for a deeper understanding of what is here. So it's not necessarily inherent in the labeling, there's greater understanding, but uh, many people find that in labeling something, there's greater understanding. One way it works 
is that, um, say you think sitting here and you're noting um, it, uh, the breath, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. And then, I really want ice cream. So thinking, no thinking, thinking. Breathing in, breathing out, hearing, I want ice cream. Breathing in, breathing out, you know, feeling an ache in my knee. I really want ice cream. <laughs> and it might occur to you after a while that there's a, that there's a pattern where your mind keeps coming back to the same theme over and over again. And unless you label, you might not see how regular the pattern is. How often something... So in other words, a person might not recognize that they're caught by some concern or some feeling or an emotion unless they, have, they can track it over time and see how often it's occurring. And so the labeling... So for example, it might be anxiety. Maybe a person doesn't realize how anxious they are, but they start noting all their experience and they see that every third note is anxiety. Wow, I had no idea that it was such a common theme for me. So the continuity of noting gives us inf- information that can be very helpful. Um, one of the ways that uh, mental noting helps us, as I kind of alluded to before, it is an alternative, it's a form of very primitive thinking that's an alternative to discursive thinking. So it's a way of helping the mind not get caught up in conversations in, its, to its, in, in the mind, discursive thinking. And it's, uh, it's much easier to see deeply into our experience here and now if we're not caught up in discursive thinking. So the mental note is an alternative. So um, if you find yourself caught up in a lot of thinking, that might be a really useful time to start using the mental noting. And I do that a lot. If I sit down to meditate and my mind is still busy with my day, and it's hard for me to be present. One of the ways that I help helps me kind of get settled down is to start using mental noting, the naming of the experience. And for me, I often kind of settle pretty quickly that way. Um, another function of mental noting is that it pulls us out of being entangled or caught by our experience. And um, if you keep thinking about something over and over again, you're entangled. If you let go of the thought and you come right back, you're entangled. Um, or maybe even you can't, you can't even let go of it. You're so concerned or wrapped up around certain feelings, certain experiences, certain things. Um, we're entangled, we're caught by it. And um, one of the I think, great potentials of mindfulness is to show us <laughs> how much we're entangled. Some people don't realize how entangled they are until they start paying attention. And um, so the mental noting is a way to help us uh, get disentangled to pull us out of the entanglement. Um, and there's, it works in different ways. So if, um, if you're thinking very, you know, thinking about ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, you know, I need to start thinking about ice cream. I'm supposed to be doing my job here. Um, so you say, oh, wanting. Very simple label. There's wanting going on. Wanting, wanting. And as we say wanting, the mind keeps wanting to go back thinking about ice cream flavors. And so we want to stop doing, stop doing the noting. And you can feel sometimes this pull and push and pull between maintaining the mature, stable mental noting versus keep thinking about the theme you want to talk about. And so you, that, then you're entangled. So you keep coming back to the label, keep coming back to the label, wanting, wanting, until the wanting, the, 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 until the recognition of there being wanting 
is stronger than being pulled into the current of wanting thoughts or wanting feelings. So, oh, I feel the current. I feel that tremendous draw towards wanting. I'll just say, wanting. Wanting is happening now. Wanting is happening now. This is wanting. Yes, this is wanting, wanting. Until you feel yourself kind of disentangle, pull out, step out of, step up on dry ground and see uh, the, the, the experience there. Become free of it. One of the great stories in the Buddhist tradition of this is after the Buddha was enlightened, um, Mara came to see Buddha. Mara is understood to be the personification of all these um, forces of temptation, difficult emotional states that might arise for a person. And it's interesting that after the Buddha was enlightened, Mara still comes to visit the Buddha. You think the Buddha was free of those things. But what's interesting is what the Buddha, how the Buddha responds to the presence of Mara, temptation. All he does is he says, Mara, I see you. It's kind of like labeling, Mara, there you are. Very simple. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not for Mara, not against Mara. Doesn't attack Mara, doesn't run away, doesn't invite Mara for, for, for tea. Just says, I see you. And then every time, in the stories at least, when Buddha does that, Mara runs away. There's something very powerful about being able to see very clearly and call something what it is. Desire, I see you. Hate, I see you. If you see it clearly enough, you're probably not going to be in the hate. You're going to step out of it. Unless, or you might see, I really want to be in the hate. I prefer to be there. No, hate, hate. There's hating here, there's hating here. And you feel it pull. And then you can decide where you want to really want to be. Um, we say in our tradition that uh, the, the mental noting is to help us identify what's going on without identifying with something. The diff- we don't want to identify with it so one of the very powerful places for this is with um, uh, pain. To label pain, to note pain. And it can be as simple as saying, if you call it my pain, there can be a qualitative difference in the mind with that versus saying pain. The, the, the adding the, the idea of my pain on top of the pain creates more entanglement with the experience. If it's just pain, there's a little more distance from it, a little more freedom from it. So, um, so one of the functions of mental noting is to help us to disentangle with our experience, to become free of it. Um, so I want to read an article, so you don't have to take a Buddhist teacher's word for all this, from a um, psychological article. By a, it's an article titled, Grief and the Mindfulness Approach. Death, Dying, and Bereavement Counseling. So this is a clinical article. In one case, a divorced woman would have bouts of depression and anxiety when she remembered her ex-husband's bizarre sexual demands. She was trained to label her thoughts as remembering, remembering. And within a few days, she could see the causal relationship between the thoughts and the anxiety and depression. It's pretty good. The causal connection between the thoughts. Thought arises, the emotion follows, feelings follow. And if you see that connection, then it's possible to 
sometimes stop the chain before it spirals out. Another woman who was hospitalized for manic depression and schizophrenia was was instructed to watch the second hand of a clock and when her mind went off the clock to name the distraction. Soon she realized that most of her distractions were related to the past. So here's an example. If you label regularly, start seeing the, the themes that keep reappearing, the patterns. She was, um, she was then instructed to re- label them as remembering, remembering. With this technique, she learned to identify herself with the objective watcher of her disturbing thoughts instead of the depressed thinker. Okay? So she may pulled herself away, could identify, but not identify with. Soon she began to gain insight into the nature of her illness and was released from hospital. Another woman who was hospitalized for anxiety, depression, and inability to function adequately rebelled against any suggestion of introspection. As she was a Mormon, the word Buddhist or meditation was not mentioned. As a therapist interacted with her, it became evident that much of her day was spent fantasizing and imagining to avoid the anxiety of her life. The habit of fantasizing was was discussed with her, and then she was asked to undertake a psychological procedure. Remember, this is someone who rebels against any introspection. To her surprise, she was asked to bake a cake. However, she had to do it extremely mindfully with minute attention to detail. When the persistent fantasies would arise, she was instructed to just observe them. After a while, she found that she could intentionally return to the present moment and so function more adequately. She also began to gain insight into the nature of her anxiety and depression. So the last one wasn't named, wasn't asked to name it, but still to identify uh, the fantasies and then uh, learn to disentangle ourselves from those fantasies. And then that brought her a lot of benefit. Another benefit of um, labeling is that um, as we practice the continuity of noting, if we do that kind of noting continuously, as we get disentangled from the experience, um, some people find that it becomes interesting to notice uh, the tone of the inner voice that does the noting. Because sometimes it can be harsh, Sometimes it can be complacent, bored. There can be be an attitude that comes along with a noting. It's not a neutral, matter-of-fact noting. It's like, so you have pain, and we're noting the pain. It might be, ah, the pain, pain. (laughs) You know, we're we're entangled, we're involved. Or if there's some real pleasure in meditation going on, and the person goes, labels it, they just, that's also being involved. And uh, if your person pays attention to the way, the attitude, the tone in which the inner voice is labeling, you can sometimes notice that attitude, notice that the way we were caught, caught in it. And the idea is to be very simple and matter-of-fact. Just, just, just hearing, pain, pleasure, just simple. And as we practice this continuity, and as we um, get a little, bit dis- a little disentangled with the experience, and as we stay more kind of equanimous or neutral about what we're labeling, um, many people will find that they start becoming more fluid or receptive in their awareness. The awareness is more fluid, more flowing with the experience, 
or experience flows through them much more fluidly. Uh, they're not stopping or blocking or resisting or running away from experience. Um, they're much more receptive and willing to be open to the experience is what it is. And this is a very important part of mindfulness, is not to create a distance between us that's hard and separate, like I'm keeping things at bay, but rather to be open to experience it more fully. So the trick with the mindfulness, with the noting, is how do we note in such a way that we stay soft and receptive? Some people note in a very hard way and they create a kind of artificial distance which is not so helpful. In the same spirit, then another function of the noting is to train us in non-judgmental awareness. So training, and it's not an easy training necessarily, but it's a training to learn how to recognize something without judging it, without being for and against it, without saying it's good or bad. Just very simple. This is the experience. And this can be very helpful for people who judge themselves very negatively, for example, for some of their inner mental tendencies. Uh, You might have murderous rage about something and feel like you're just an awful person. And um, in the mental noting, you learn to recognize, to name it, rage. Rage, rage, rage without adding on, oh, I'm an awful person because of it. Or there's the a whole slew of things that might come up that we, we judge. Might be We judge it positively. Oh, I'm a great person. I'm the first saint at IMC. <laughs> and, um, and no, you don't have to go that far. You can just simply say, you know, oh, generous thought happened. There was a generous thought or a kind thought. Just that. Um, so we train this non-judgmental or non abstract kind of recognizing just what's there. So these are some of the functions of it. Um, There is some uh, dangers with the mental noting. I don't want to just kind of champion it without mentioning them as well. Uh, Some people uh, will use the mental noting mechanically as a way of, almost mechanically, as a way of actually creating a barrier between themselves and their experience or a way of trying to control their experience, um, or a way of not really experiencing what's really here. I've known people who just kind of kept a running monologue of noting, 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 so they wouldn't have to feel what's really going on. Uh, or feel like they're in control, because if they stopped the noting, then their mind would kind of just be out of, you know, just be out of control. They would, wouldn't, you know, it's a way of kind of keeping these very powerful psychological forces at bay as opposed to opening to them and discovering how to be free with them. So the mental noting can be, uh, cause problems for people or be, be not done, done in the wrong way. Um, also, sometimes if the mental noting is done too much, um, it's kind of like at a coarser level of the mind and some of the more sublime um, or some of the more uh, uh, subtle movements in our hearts and our minds uh, don't, doesn't have a chance to show itself. And so it's a way of not, be, you know, again, um, um, we don't, might, not, might not get to know each other, know ourselves as deeply if we keep the noting going too much. Still, it can be very helpful. Um, some people find that noting continuously is very, very helpful. When I was on my long retreats, uh, I was taught to, to note all the time. All my waking hours, I was supposed to be involved in noting my experiencing, labeling what was going on all the time. And it was a little bit, it took me a while to learn how to do it, 
It was like riding a bicycle. Uh, it, w- it was very awkward at first. And I'd been, done a lot of meditation practice before this where I didn't uh, do the noting. And it was, um, um, you know, I said, what's this? My mind's now getting busy. I'm doing all this stuff in my mind. I used to be really quiet in my mind. Now I'm noting all the time. And, um, but I, you know, I diligently did it anyway. My teachers told me to do it. And after a while, it became second nature, like riding a bike. After a while, you can ride the bike without your, holding the handlebars even. You get good enough at it. So after a while, I could note without the handlebars. <laughs> I, could just, I could just note, you know, it was kind of second nature, very easy and very, and very supportive of my practice. And it became very, very helpful for me. And uh, I attribute a lot of the depth I had in my practice to my, the continuity of my me- mental noting that I had. For me, it worked really well. There are other people for whom mental noting does not work so well. And so to be studying with a teacher who says you have to do mental noting, and that's what you do, um, is, uh, is sometimes a problem. Doesn't, doesn't end up doing something that doesn't really work for their particular mind. Some people find that rather than practice the noting continuously, it can be helpful to notice particular times or particular things. It can be helpful to note, it, to note maybe, um, at the beginning of meditation. Just get started. The mind is distracted a lot. Or it can be uh, particularly useful. For some people find it's very helpful to note um, when the mind is getting really concentrated, but the mind has this little tendency to waver from the concentration. And the note, very subtle noting, is like a nudge that keeps us there, keeps us there. The noting is like a soft frame around the experience to keep us with the experience, keep us right there. And so then it's really useful. Some people find it's helpful to note um, the experience, uh, particular things, like thinking. They can be very, very quiet in their mind generally, but then every time the mind goes off into thinking, it's very helpful to note thinking, thinking. And that can interrupt the getting uh, lost in the current of thinking. Pulls us back, disentangles us a little bit. Some people find that's very helpful. Other people find it very helpful with certain emotions, or every emotion, because emotions is where they get entangled. Oh, happy, sad, angry, whatever, just noting that, that pulls them back into the present moment. Some people find it's helpful to note the feeling tone of the experience, pleasant, unpleasant of the experience. Some people find it helpful to use mental noting when things are out of control in their life. And none of you, of course. But um, there are times when there's very powerful forces within us. Uh, powerful forces of desire, of addiction, powerful forces of hate, powerful forces of, of self-loathing, powerful forces of all kinds of stuff that goes on inside of us. And it's really humbling to understand how powerful the mind can kind of have a mind of its own. and It's not, it's not my choosing to be swept away this way. And... Um, and then sometimes that might be a time when the noting becomes like a lifeline for some certain people. And, uh, and they, they use a noting because without the noting, it's too easy to get caught up and start acting in ways that later very much regret. Just no. So it becomes a tool, it becomes a refuge, it becomes a lifeline just to stay balanced or stay you know, protected from being swept away. Um, and then finally, another uh, way in which some people note is they n- only note when um, that which takes them away from the breath. If they're focusing on the breath as a primary meditation object, 
whenever the, uh, something takes them away from the breath, they note that, and then they come back and they're silently with the breath, but they notice it. They note the distractions. That can be helpful. There's also the question of precision versus vagueness in the noting. Um, should I be precise? Some people will spend a lot of time thinking about what the right label should be. <laughs> and that's not useful. So if there's a precise na- label, which is obvious, sometimes the precision can cut through things and, and provide insight in a way that vagueness can't. So sometimes, but only if it's obvious. Don't think about it. It's okay to have a vague label. Part of the function of the label is just to keep you present. So it can be as, la- as, um, as vague as, oh, this is an experience. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? <laughs> but you have an experience, you stay present for that. Or one of the, gr- the, great, mo- one of the great labels is uh, chaos. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but it's chaotic, it's chaos. At least you're labeling, you're there to that degree, and then you can kind of you know, start to get closer based on that. Um, it could be, um, it doesn't have to be very precise. So just whatever is obvious and easy that helps frame the experience, keeps you present, stays you this, keeps you there. And then with mindfulness, because you're practicing mindfulness over a long period of time, hopefully, if something keeps reappearing over and over again, the mind, over, through familiarity, will be, be able to recognize the more precise, accurate label in its own time. You don't have to be thinking about it. Also, as the mind gets more concentrated in meditation, and I'm almost finished, I realize I'm talking over. I hope this has been not trying for you to listen to all this. Um, uh, the, um, if it has been difficult for you to listen to, boring, whatever, what you do is you label boring. <laughs> and, uh, and then you see, you know, are you entangled in the boredom or can you become free of the boredom? Um, that's what I did when I was, I did about six, seven weeks of a retreat in Thailand. And for some reason, I have no idea, my teacher took, took me out of retreat to see a gaudy funeral for a Thai general in Bangkok. And I couldn't understand any of it was in Thai. And I was really bored. And uh, after a while, I said, wait a minute, I've just been on retreat for six weeks. And I started uh, labeling boredom, feeling present, and very quickly it vanished, it vanished. So in that spirit, you're responsible for how you feel here with these talks. <laughs> you know, if you kind of start, you know, start thinking, oh, this is going on and on, and he's never going to end, and now he's gone into some other tangent, and you know. <laughs> so I apologize. So um, I want to finish with this, that, um, that um, um, as the mind gets stiller and stiller and more concentrated in meditation, it's important to adjust the loudness or the, the intensity of the labeling we do. Uh, it's almost as if there's different, different layers of thinking we can have, different layers of intensity. And the normal thinking mind is a certain level, but as the mind gets calmer and calmer, uh, the labeling gets calmer and calmer, more subtle, more quiet, quieter and quieter in the mind. Just a whisper in the mind, a little whisper of experience. And it's, it, whisper is important because the primary thing we're doing in mindfulness is not the mental labeling. We say in our tradition, 5% of what we do is the labeling. 95% is the, 
is experiencing what's there. Some people turn it around and it's 95% labeling and 5% experience. So it's 5% labeling is what we do. And then, um, and then I found that sometimes when my mindfulness got quiet enough, my, my, my mind got really still, I still found it very helpful to label or, or the name, maybe it's not the right thing, but kind of the mental noting was still useful. But um, it got to be, uh, I would just say yes to everything. Yes, yes. And just that yes was enough to keep me present, keep me from wandering off. And then at some point I got quiet enough that I just grunted at everything. My mental label was a grunt or a hmm. Just, that helped me just stay there, stay there, stay there. So the mental note doesn't have to be so precise with a word even. It's just a kind of a way, it's like some kind of verbalization, some kind of inner kind of way. Stay here, stay here, stay here. And at some point, if you've become familiar with this world of mental noting, if you're given your chance to learn it, to learn to ride the bicycle, you're fluid with it enough, then hopefully you'll also know when to stop doing it, when to not do it. Or maybe you'll find out you're not that kind of person you shouldn't be doing it. But I would encourage any of you, all of you, don't jump to the conclusion that you're not one of those people for whom mental noting doesn't work. Give it a, give it a serious try. Experiment with it, explore it. Um, what we found is that, um, this is a strange statistic that should be taken very lightly, but um, the people who use the mental noting in their meditation tend, tend, a greater percentage of them tend to make more progress in their practice than the people who don't. Now, some people who don't note make great progress. So, you know, but there's a tendency in this direction. So give it a try. And, um, and to complete the acknowledgement and the labeling of everything, I feel I should apologize for talking <laughs> over the time. So, it's late. Those of you who can stay, help uh, move chairs and stuff for a little bit, 10 minutes or so, and get ready for our renovation. It's very much appreciated. And uh, I'll see you again sometime in August. Thank you. <laughs>